Chapter thirty of a mysterious disappearance by Lewis Tracy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Carolyn. Sir Charles Dyke ends his narrative. A mere suspicion, indeed, she said, and there was that in her voice which warned me that I had better try unarmed to control a tigress than a wife who deemed herself wronged. These are pretty suspicions that surround you. A house tenanted by another woman where you are evidently master. A mistress who left the ranks of the ballet, or something of the sort, living in luxury on means supplied by you. A married woman who casts off her husband with her poverty, to take up a paramour and riches. Do you think you can blind my eyes further? I have the most convincing proofs of your infamy. Do not imagine that on any spacious pretext you will condone your conduct. I despise you from the depths of my heart. Thenceforth I will strive to forget your very existence. Alice, I said, and if she had not been blinded by passion she must have been affected by my earnestness. Will you listen to me? Why should I? What respect have you shown to me that I should now seem even to accept your excuses? I appeal to you not to do anything in anger. You have good reason to be enraged with me. I only ask you to suspend your final judgment. Hear what I have to say, take time for deliberation, for further inquiry, and then condemn you to any punishment you think fit. She did not answer me. Her eyes were roving round the room and taking stock of every indication of poor Mrs. Hilmer's artistic aptitude. The place was eminently homelike, much more so than our elegant mansion in Portman Square, and my wife noted the fact with momentarily increasing bitterness. Yet I essayed my desperate task with failing nerve and terrible consciousness of a bad cause. Notwithstanding all that you have seen and heard, I said, I am not guilty of the crime you accuse me of. Mrs. Hilmer is an old friend of mine, whom I have helped from a state of misery to one of comfort and comparative happiness. She is as pure-minded in thought, as spotless in character as you are yourself. You are doing her a grievous injustice by doubting the relations between her and me. If you only knew her... My wife laughed scornfully. Pray spare yourself, Charles. I have never seen you so interested before, but you lie badly, nevertheless. I do not lie. Before heaven I am telling you the truth. You are even willing to perjure yourself, Colonel Montgomery? My poor armour was ill-fitted for this stroke. I suppose I must have flinched before it, for she went on. You see, I am well posted. My detectives have done their work well. Oh, heaven, that I should ever have learned to love a vile wretch like you. I thought you respected me at least. I tried hard to bend my own wishes to sympathy with yours, and I dreamt even of ultimate success. I knew you didn't care much for me, but the devotion of a slave has at times been rewarded by the affection of her master. Fortunately, I am a slave by choice. It only required experience to break my bonds, and you have supplied the experience." For the first time in my life did it dawn on me that my self-contained and haughty wife harboured other thoughts than a sentiment of respect for an indulgent and easily controlled husband. It was a shock to me, a deeper humiliation than she dreamt of. How could I expiate the past, wipe out this record of error and folly, but not of ill-doing, and live happily with her so long as Providence was pleased to spare us? 
While these things ran through my brain, she suddenly turned on me. "'You fear exposure in the law courts. You dread your name figuring in a society scandal. How little you know me. You naturally compare me by your own contemptible standard. I left your house to-night, determined never to return to it should I find you here, as in all probability I was told would be the case. I will go to my sister until I have determined upon my future life.' You, at least, will never, by my desire, see or hear from me again. Thus far, I presume, I will fall in with your views. She would have passed me, but I held fast to the inside of the door. If once she got away from me, I might never be able to set affairs even tolerably right. Better, I deemed, have one trying scene in the hope that she would calm down in the face of facts, then allow her to carry the quarrel to her relatives and strengthen her attitude by her natural support. "'Alice,' I said, "'you shall not go.' "'How can you dare to detain me?' she shrieked, and the glint in her eyes showed how thoroughly her passions were aroused. "'You can separate from me if you will. I shall not venture to hinder you. But I swear you shall not do this rash act without knowledge. I tell you, you must remain here.' When you leave this house, you do so in my company. And why am I to be kept a prisoner? Mrs. Hilmer will return in less than an hour. You have sought this meeting yourself. Very well, you shall have it. When your charges have been thoroughly thrashed out in the presence of Mrs. Hilmer and myself, I will then accompany you where you will, and leave you under the protection of your sister, or any one else you choose, should you still persist in leaving me. Of course my action was unwise to the last degree. But remember, Claude, that during these last awful five minutes I had seen a side of my wife's nature hidden from me six long years. And I was a man suddenly plunged into a raging sea, drifting helplessly I knew not whither. All that consumed me was a wild desire for such scant justice as I deserved. I had erred, but my faults were not those my wife alleged against me. If she was angry before, she was now absolutely uncontrollable. What? she screamed. Remain to meet your... your mistress? Never while I have life. She flung herself upon me so suddenly that she tore me away from the door. She was a strong and athletic woman, and I suppose she expected some resistance, for she used such force as to drag me forward into the middle of the room, overturning a chair in the effort. I was so utterly taken by surprise that I yielded to her violence more completely than she expected. She staggered, let go of her hold, and fell heavily backwards, tripping over the fallen chair. I made a desperate attempt to save her, but only caught the end of a fur necklet, and it tore like a spider's web. Her body crashed against the Venetian fender, and her head came with awful force against a sort of support for the fire-irons that stood up a foot from the ground. Then she rolled over, her eyes and face undergoing a ghastly change, and instantly became, as I thought, unconscious. I knelt beside her, raising her head with my right hand, and brokenly besought her to speak to me when I would at once do anything she demanded but she gave no sign of animation. In a frenzy of despair I forced myself to examine her injuries, and my heart nearly stopped beating when I discovered that a large piece of iron had been driven into her brain through the back of her head. I knew in a moment that she was dead. 
although i have not had much experience of that terrible epoch in the human being i have seen far too much of death in animal life not to know that she who had been my honoured and respected wife now lay before me a mere soulless entity a symbol only of the splendid vital creature who a minute earlier was angrily protesting against the supposed faithlessness of her maid looking back now upon the events of that fateful night i marvel at the appalling coolness which came to my aid as soon as i realized the extent of the misfortune which had befallen both alice and myself i can fully understand what is meant by the callousness of a certain class of criminals or the indifference to inevitable death betrayed by eastern races no sooner was i quite assured that my wife was dead dead beyond hope or doubt then i regained the use of my reasoning faculties in the most marvellously cold-blooded degree the actual difficulties of my position were enormous i arraigned myself before the judge and jury and saw clearly that every circumstance which contributed to alice's suspicion in the first instance were now magnified a hundredfold by the manner and scene of her death before me in ghostly panorama moved the dread crowd of witnesses against me the degradation of my family the bitter and vengeful feelings of my wife's relatives the suffering of poor unconscious mrs hilmer the whole avalanche of horror and misery which this unfortunate accident had precipitated upon every person who claimed my relationship or friendship my mental attitude was quite altruistic could i have undone the past i would cheerfully have undergone a painful and protracted death forthwith but no possible atonement on my part would restore alice to life i knew it was quite improbable that i should be convicted of murdering her strong as the circumstantial testimony against me must be the mere legal consequences did not however weigh with me for a second from that awful hour i felt that i was doomed personally my only thought was to seek oblivion not only for myself but for all whom alice's death might affect reasoning in this way i rapidly resolved to make a bold effort to conceal forever the time and place of the fatality if i failed i could tell the truth if i succeeded i might at my own expense save a vast amount of unnecessary sorrow the desperate expedient came to me of carrying off the body to the untenanted house at putney where my old master had resided until his death utilizing the four-wheeled cab with its half-drunken driver for the purpose if i reached putney unhindered i could dispose of my terrible burden easily for the river flowed past the grounds and every inch of the locality was known to me it occurred to me that perhaps the body might be found and recognized our personal linen was never marked by reason of the fact that our laundry work was done upon our yorkshire estate but as a temporary safeguard i resolved to take some different and less valuable outer clothes from mrs hilmer's residence her maid was of a similar build to my wife so i hastened to the girl's room and laid hands upon a soiled coat and skirt which were relegated to the recesses of the wardrobe i glanced at my watch as i came along the corridor it was six fifteen p m all the incidents i have related to you had happened within a quarter of an hour oh heaven it seemed longer than all the preceding years of my life having resolved upon a line of conduct i pursued it with a sang-froid 
and accuracy of one of the superior scoundrels delineated by du bois the door to the flat was locked if the servants hardly do yet returned unexpectedly i would send them off to victoria station on some imaginary errand of their mistresses i knelt beside my poor wife's body once more and with great difficulty took off a costume and loosely fastened on the maid's garments in her purse there were some bulky documents which i afterwards discovered to be the reports furnished by a firm of private detectives detailing all my movements with reference to Raleigh mansions with surprising accuracy but she had concealed her name these men themselves only knew me as colonel montgomery how alice first came to suspect me i can only guess perhaps my indifference my absence from home at definite hours a chance meeting at the street unknown to me any of these may have supplied the initial cause and led her to verify her doubts before taxing me with my supposed inquity indeed her final act of coming alone to mrs hilmer's abode revealed her fearless spirit and independent methods she wanted no divorce court revelations she would simply have spurned me as an unworthy and dishonourable wretch her small belongings i put in my pockets the clothes i made into a parcel and stuffed temporarily beneath my overcoat then i unlocked the door and went down the few steps to the main entrance there was no one about the fog and sleet having cleared the street a quiet thoroughfare at all times i took the risk of the maids coming back and i ran to the square for my conveyance the driver had been improving the occasion and was more inebriated than before he brought his cab to the door and i knew by the appearance of things that no one had entered during my absence with some difficulty i lifted alice's body into my arms in as natural a position as possible and carried her to the cab leaving the door of the flat ajar luck still favoured me the cabman supposed that she like himself was intoxicated a man came down the opposite side of the street but he paid not the slightest heed to me and indeed we were but dimly visible to each other exerting all my strength unobtrusively i placed my wife on the rear seat and then calmly gave the driver instructions he grumbled at the distance but i told him i would pay him handsomely searching in my pockets in alice's purse i could only find twelve shillings so although it was risky to avoid quarrel with the man i determined to give him a five-pound note thus far all had gone well the notion possessed me that to all intents and purposes i had murdered my wife and that i was now disposing of the visible signs of my guilt in the most approved manner of a daring criminal whether i did right or wrong i cannot even at this late hour decide should my death induce forgetfulness i am still inclined to think that i acted for the best my wife was dead i was self-condemned why then allow others wholly innocent to be dragged into the vortex this was my line of thought if you reading this ghastly narrative shudder at my deeds i pray you nevertheless to weigh in the balance of good and ill that resulted from my actions at last we reached putney and drew up at the end of the disused lane which runs down by the side of the house to the river here again the road was deserted i lifted my wife out 
carried her to the postern gate, and returned to give the driver his note. The man was so amazed at the amount that he whipped up his horse instantly, fearing lest I should change my mind. I was about to force open the old and rickety door into the garden when I remembered the drain-pipe jutting into the Thames, a place where, as a child, I often caused much alarm by surreptitious visits for the purpose of catching minnows. I quickly took off my coat and boots, turned up my trousers and shirt-sleeves, and examined the pipe with my hands. It exactly suited my purpose. In half a minute I had firmly wedged my wife's body beneath it. This was the most horrible portion of my task. The chill water, the desolation of the river-bank, the mud and trailing weeds, all these things seemed so vile and loathsome when placed into contact with the mortal remains of my ill-fated Alice. She had loved me, I believe I loved her, as I assuredly do now when her presence is but a memory, yet I was condemned to commit her to the contaminating beastliness of such surroundings. It was a small matter in the face of death, but it has weighed on me since more than any other feature of that cruel night's history. Before leaving Putney, I tied her clothes, hat and furs, to a couple of heavy stones, and threw the parcel into deep water. By train and cab, I reached home but a few minutes late for dinner. It was not difficult for me to act my part with the servants, nor keep up the farce during the weary days that followed. My consciousness was so seared by what I had gone through that the mere make-believe of my position was a relief to me. That night, in the privacy of my room, I recollected the broken fender, and feared lest the ironwork would supply a clue should the body be discovered, a thing I deemed practically impossible. But for Mrs. Hilmer's sake I took no risk. Next morning, before I saw you at Tattersall's, I made arrangements for the whole contents of her drawing-room to be transferred to her brother's flat, where, to my knowledge, the articles were needed. Mrs. Hilmer had gone out early, so the thing was done in her absence. Her amazement was so great that she wired me, using as a signature the pet name of her childhood, and this was the first message you heard the groom refer to when he came a second time with the telegram from Richmond. I wrote her a hurried note, explaining that I intended the transfer as a sop to her offered brother, but she had telegraphed again, and I had to go to see her, to learn that Mensmore resented the gift, and had gone off in a huff to Monte Carlo. A little later I took the supreme step of writing a farewell letter. Since my wife's death I could not bear to meet any other woman. I communed with my poor Alice more when dead than when alive. I do not think I have anything else to tell you. Step by step I watched you and the police tearing aside my barrier of deceit. At times I thought I would baffle you in the end. Were it not for my folly in bribing Jane Harding I think I must have succeeded. That poor girl was the undoing of me in the first instance, and she now has brought me my final sentence, for she came to-day and told me with tears all that had happened between the detective and herself. White, too, put in an appearance. Tomorrow, I suppose, he will bring a warrant, if you do not see him first and tell him the truth. Do not misunderstand me. I am glad of this release. 
when you strove to arouse me from my despair i did for a little while cherished a hope that i might be able to devote my declining years to the work which alice herself took an interest in but the web of testimony woven round my old friend mensmore the self-effacing spirit of his sister who to shield me was willing to sacrifice herself the possibility that i might involve these two and perhaps others in my own ruin every circumstance conspired to overwhelm me i can endure no more my dear bruce it is ended the past is already a dream to me the future void my poor nature was not designed to withstand such a strain the cord of existence has snapped and i cannot bring myself to believe it will be mended again in bidding you farewell i ask one thing if you take a charitable view of my deeds if you consider that my penalty is commensurate with my faults then you might take my dead hand and say this was my friend i pity him may the spirit of his wife be merciful unto him should they meet in the regions beyond the grave and so for the last time i sign myself charles dyke End of chapter thirty